This is week five of our series that looks at the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the arts. We're in the midst of another rather confusing week in a country that still has no unified plan to tackle the pandemic. And unfortunately, there's no sign things are improving as the White House has proved again and again that it's more interested in PRing this extraordinary situation than elevating scientists and doctors who may know the solutions. Various U.S. states continue to clamor for much-needed medical supplies and equipment, and it's kind of a mess, let's just admit it. New York is still at the center of the pandemic here in the United States, and the arts community continues to wonder when museums, art schools, and galleries might open up again. The short answer? We're still not sure. I'm Hrag Bhaktanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. And I'm joined by editor Jasmine Weber in Los Angeles and reporters Valentina Delicia in Miami and Hakeem Bashara here in Brooklyn. This time, we'll start with Valentina, who's been keeping track of museum layoffs and furloughs. So last Friday, we reported that the Guggenheim in New York expects a $10 million shortfall related to the pandemic. Uh, Richard Armstrong, the museum's director, actually sent an email to all staff that same Friday morning announcing that 92 staff would be furloughed. Of course, the email said that the decision wasn't easy, but, you know, there's a real sense of uncertainty pervading all of these institutions' communications to staff. And I think that's kind of what's been the scariest for workers to handle. So the Guggenheim said that the museum might reopen its doors on July 1st, but of course, we don't know that that will be feasible. Nobody really knows. And he ended the email on a note that's, you know, again, highlighting that uncertainty. He said, when we come back, the consensus is the world we will find ourselves in will be very different. It's also worth mentioning that Armstrong said salary cuts would be experienced, especially by leadership and people at the higher salary levels. So staff making more than 80000 will take a salary reduction on a graduated basis, meaning that the percentages of reductions will be higher at the higher salary levels. It's not really encouraging those words, I have to say. I don't know who he's expecting to inspire with that, but it's a really interesting story. Certainly, yeah. And I mean, we've seen that same kind of we don't really know what's going to happen discourse uh, coming from the Whitney as well, when the previous week it laid off 76 of its staff. There's really a sense that leaders may be trying to communicate with their staff, but it's a difficult time and they don't know. But again, as always, it seems to hit the workers first and hardest. And in line with that, Hrag, I know that I'd love to talk about a story that I've been working on now for a couple of weeks, which is about museum endowments, something that we went into briefly in our last podcast. But actually, you know, the story is is more than just about museum endowments, but this question of how right now during the pandemic, the issue of why won't wealthy institutions pay their workers seems to really be dominating the cultural conversation. That's a really good point. I have a question, though. In terms of were people open to talking about this topic? How hesitant were people or how private were they around this? And how easy was it to find the answers? Thank you for asking that. Um, You know, I'm going to play a clip in a minute from uh, somebody who is a museum specialist that I spoke to who was very transparent and very helpful. 
And I was able to get some hard numbers from institutions like the Met regarding how they use their endowment, what their endowment size is. But yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a sense that we're kind of walking on eggshells. That was my experience. But again, at least I found that people were grateful that I was reaching out to talk about financials, which really made me think, why don't we talk about these things more often? I mean, besides this question of why won't you pay workers, it's why don't workers necessarily have transparent conversations with museum leaders, or rather, why don't museum leaders transparently speak about museum finances with workers? Most of these workers are just getting an email one random Friday morning saying, this is what's happening, rather than, hey, here's a breakdown of the endowment. Here's why we can't cover this. Here's why we can't cover that. Like, this is really the time to start having those conversations. And that's what writing this article taught me. So, Absolutely. I think that's such a good point. I think particularly in the arts field, financial literacy is also something that yes. I would love to see increased because as much as we'd like people to get paid and, uh, you know, obviously everyone deserves to get paid for their labor of different types. I think there's sometimes very, you know, there's a hole in the knowledge in terms of like the information they're willing to dole out institutions or people and what they understand in terms of how institutions function. Because I think it might also be part of this sort of uh, fiction that's sort of been propagated is that there's so much money in the art world and we're all sitting on a whole yeah. bunch of cash and the reality Absolutely. is very different. So yeah, look forward Absolutely. to it. So go ahead. So I spoke to Christy Coleman, who's currently executive director of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation in Virginia about endowments and what the current pandemic means for institutions at large. To give you an idea of her background, Coleman has led two institutions through two prior financial crises. She was at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit during the aftermath of September 11, and she was at the American Civil War Center, which is now American Civil War Museum, in Virginia during the Great Recession. Here's a clip from my interview with Christy where you'll hear her talk about endowments and about her thoughts on the current crisis. First of all, let's be clear, the vast majority of museums, i.e. 95% of them, do not have endowments in the multiple of millions or billions mm -hmm. category. Let's start there. The vast majority do not have anything remotely close to that. And then there are the extreme cases where there are some museums that over the past decade or you know, since the Great Recession decided, oh, we've got an endowment, parts of it are unrestricted, um, we are not meeting projections, so we're going to go ahead and dip into that endowment to cover budget shortfalls, rather than dealing with systemic problems in its operating model or not adjusting appropriately to market conditions, i.e. not enough visitors are coming, so do you still need all those people to serve them, et cetera, et cetera. And so they find themselves in a situation now where they don't have, <laughs> they don't have that money that they've dipped into when a real crisis comes along. This time, what is most concerning to me is that we've got all of those factors at play. We've got the fear and uncertainty of 9-11 and that high emotional time where, you know, philanthropy dollars shifted towards social service agencies, and that is already happening. And, you know, on top of that, you have market volatility and people, mass amounts of people being unemployed and no real way of knowing whether those people are going to be able to go back to the work that they had before or if they're going to be, you know, if they're going to be able to fully re-enter the workplace. We just don't know. 
it's important that you pointed out this difference between, you know, smaller museums that may not have a sizable endowment or may not have an endowment at all, and those are the vast majority, and, you know, these larger kind of titans that make up a very yeah, small minority. That's what, I gotta tell you, that's what makes me crazy, is that, you know, well, gosh, museums, why don't they do that? I'm like, wait a minute, the vast majority, listen, we got 35,000 museums in the United States. Only 4% of those are art museums to start with. And the wealthiest of our institutions are, in fact, art museums, mm. right? That's where the money is. That's where those huge endowments are, are, are in the art museums. They're not in our local history museums. They're not in the local historical society. They're not at the zoos and the aquarium and children's museums. And those make up the vast majority of museums. 55% of the museums in this country are history museums, and they're local history museums. And again, most of those are operating on very, very tight margins. And so when you cut off, you know, the primary means for us to operate, which is, you know, admissions and attendance, like any business, we're, we're struggling. We're trying to figure it out. So that's an interesting idea, right? That most museums don't have endowments at all. And that when we're talking about endowments, we're really, really talking about the very top and the very wealthy. I'd also like to mention Christy runs a Twitter account at History Gone Wrong, and that's History G-O-N Wrong, where she's been tweeting a bit about uh, museums and how museums are financed. And it's interesting, when I interviewed her for my piece, she mentioned that she was floored by the amount of attention that she was getting on her Twitter about what she thought were just straightforward, you know, straightforward details about how museums are run. And not only just from people on Twitter, but from her peers in the industry. So I think that really speaks to how important it is to have this conversation right now. That's a good point. You know, and can I, I just want to mention one thing I've been thinking a lot about is the fact that museums don't make their their staff very visible, by which I mean, we don't actually know how many of these institutions are organized. And I think that's a really interesting, I wish there was a little more transparency too, in terms of understanding the organizations of institutions like the Whitney, the Met, MoMA. And I think sometimes that, mm -hmm. that information would help people make, you know, informed decisions and in, have informed opinions as well. Exactly. So leading into some numbers, and again, when we talk about endowments, and Christy stresses so many times, and now I'm a big proponent of it, it's really important to remember most museums do not have them. Um, but take a museum like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which has the museum confirmed to me a $3.4 billion endowment at this stage, and it pulls roughly half of its $320 million annual operating budget from endowment funds. And, you know, it doesn't expect for that draw to be larger this year even as it projects this 100 million shortfall. How did it then cover the salaries of its staff of 2200 through May 2nd? Well, the Met said that it turned to a combination of means, so it cut programming, it imposed a hiring freeze, it deferred infrastructure spending, and it also raised some funds. But from my conversations with the museum, there's a sense that even with all these measures, extending pay during a period of no revenue sources will add significantly to its operating deficit. And some might ask, well, if the endowment is so huge, why doesn't it just turn to that? And, you know, again, as we've said, 
endowments are heavily restricted. They're tied up in investments already. Investments, many of which are tanking right now because the economy isn't doing so great. So institutions, even those that do have large endowments, may be turning to other measures. And the Met certainly is always an example for the industry and really should be uh, lauded for its decision to continue paying staff through such a period, especially such a large staff. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the Met has always been a bellwether. Um, Just before you continue, I just wonder, Jasmine, if you wanted to jump in, uh, since you've been working on many of these stories with Valentina and, and Hakeem, and just wondering if you had any thoughts about the endowment story. Yeah, I think what's interesting about Christie's thread about museum endowments going viral is that it speaks to what Valentina, you mentioned about this need for transparency. I think that with organizations like Art and Museum Transparency, having created a spreadsheet last year and now growing into a really well-respected organization that's using its platform to keep people informed about unionization and different layoffs now that COVID-19 is happening. I think that keeping people informed about why these museums are taking these measures, whether or not they're necessary for certain museums, because obviously we look at a museum like the MoMA, which is very different than even a museum like the Guggenheim. And I think that one of the most frustrating thing that's happened throughout as someone who works in the arts is seeing institutions like MoMA sending such a disheartening letter to their freelance educators saying that these contracts are being terminated for an indefinite period of time whether that be months or even years, they acknowledge. And what I find interesting is that what they did in that letter was really devalue the work that these educators have done at the museum. But I think that having these layered and nuanced conversations about what the the details of their finances are is incredibly helpful. And I'm excited that our readers can learn a little bit more from Valentina's feature. Great. Thanks, Jasmine. So Valentina, you also have been looking into a little bit of what's going on in Hong Kong now that things seem to be slowly opening up. Do you want to give us an update? Sure. So I actually spoke to William Molesworth, who runs the Sarth Gallery in Hong Kong, and he actually told me that they were able to open an exhibition this past Saturday alongside two other galleries in their neighborhood. He told me that in Hong Kong, there are social distancing rules that are still in effect. And in order to keep with those guidelines, they had to take certain precautions. So they were checking temperatures at the opening. Guests who showed up at the opening had to complete a health declaration form. And of course, they were limiting the amount of people in the gallery at any one time. They did this also, and this is something that we kind of saw at the beginning of the pandemic that some galleries were doing until, of course, they just shut down completely. But they extended the opening hours. So rather than having like a 6 to 8 opening, they had a noon to 7 p.m. opening, allowing people to kind of trickle in slowly rather than filling the space completely. But he says, from what he sees, the social distancing rules in Hong Kong are relatively slack compared to what um, the West is experiencing, in part because the outbreak is relatively under control. And he said that he saw a strong turnout, that you know people were actually cautiously happy to join. So I think what this really got me thinking about was what is the art world going to look like um, when we start easing restrictions here, if we can, in the next couple of months? Again, we don't know. But how long will we be taking precautions and just being more careful? And gosh, what kind of world, forget what kind of art world, what kind of world are we going to be entering after this is all over? 
That's a really good point. Though we should mention that Hong Kong is is a little unique in that to kind of give you a sense of how, you know, under control the epidemic was that not a single healthcare worker has passed away from COVID-19 in Hong Kong. While we've seen here in New York and elsewhere in the U.S., of course, healthcare workers are some of the ones that are most impacted. So it does sound like Hong Kong has the uh, pandemic under control in a way that we have yet to have under control yes. here. I think that's an important point to make. Thanks so it's much, It's worth Valentina. mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. It's great reporting. Uh, now, Jasmine, you. you were working with Ellie on her recent Indian market piece, and we talked about that. We touched on it briefly last week, but I'm wondering if you can give us an update. So what Ellie has done with her report about the Indian market, which is the largest Native American arts market in the United States, has bring in a ton of significant insight from artisans in the Southwest area who have been participating in Indian market for years and whose livelihoods really depend on it. One woman that she spoke to, Jessa Ray Growing Thunder, said she's attended since she was a child and her family spends the entire year preparing as it's where they make the majority of their money. Another person that she spoke to, Thomas Tiergarten, is chairman of the nonprofit Southwestern Association for Indian Arts, which is the sponsor of the Indian market. And he spoke with Ellie about the inequality bolstered by the virus, specifically affecting Native American communities. He says, quote, awareness of hotspots in Indian County and how vulnerable our populations are was part of the decision making process to postpone the market. Another insight that he brought up is that 90% of Native American populations in the Americas were eliminated before Europeans even really started to spread throughout the United States to colonize it. He says, the diseases that these people brought, quote, moved faster than the people did. So many of the traditions, the ties that bind our normal times can be vectors for transmission of this unseen virus. And I think that that's a really poignant thing to to mention is these parallels between historical colonial violence and the way that this virus and the way that governments are handling it is another form of enacting violence against marginalized communities. Last week, we spoke a bit about this inequality and how it affects um, marginalized communities, but I think that this is a really jarring example. We've also seen in different cities in Michigan and elsewhere, despite the population of African Americans being relatively low between 10 and 20 percent, in some cases, 70% of COVID-19 related deaths have been of Black populations. And I think it's incredibly important for us to acknowledge that and the way that this will affect those communities, especially. And while it's a shame that the Indian market closed and they're considering other options such as a digital marketplace, ultimately Tea Garden describes the fact that protecting their community is of first and foremost concern. Great. Thanks, Jasmine, for summarizing that report, which is incredibly important and is definitely the closure of Indian market is going to have huge uh, impact on communities all across the country. Now, Hakeem, you've been doing some reporting on some of the labor conditions at museums, and you found some interesting things about various unions at institutions. Do you want to give us a summary of what's going on? In the past week, we covered two stories about art workers pushing back against COVID-19 layoffs. And in both cases, union activists claim that they have been specifically targeted and retaliated against. Now, the first story is from the art facility Volvo in Long Island City in New York. Last week, Teamsters Local 814 filed charges with the National Labor Relations Board against the company. 
and they accused it of seizing on the COVID-19 pandemic to retaliate against pro-union workers at the company. The company laid off seven workers last week, citing pandemic losses, but the union claims that it's not a coincidence that six of the seven that were laid off happened to be outspoken pro-union workers. Now, Hirag, for, for background, art handlers at Volvo still don't have a union. They lost a union vote uh, last October by a thin margin of just three votes. And that followed an acrimonious dispute with the management over their demands for job security and health benefits and uh, increased safety and other things. Now, uh, Volvo denied the allegations. And they told me in an email that the perceived support, that's a quote, perceived support of labor unions was not a factor in the decision and that management was also affected, although they didn't specify how. Uh, now, similar claims were made at the Fry Art Museum in Seattle, where we witnessed what could be the first socially distant picket in the art world. On Friday last week, the museum laid off 21 workers which is about a third of its workforce. Two of them are prominent or leading union representatives. Security guards at uh, the Fry formed a union called the Art Workers Union last June, and they're still negotiating a contract with the management. And they claim that the decision was made unilaterally without advising with them, and that it constitutes a union busting mm kind of um, measure by the museum. The museum denies that. Joseph Rosa, the director and CEO of the Fry, told me in an email that union affiliation had no bearing on the layoffs. Though to be fair, I can't imagine anybody would say it did. Yeah, they also mentioned that, that the top management also decided on pay cuts, but I tried to follow up on that and ask how much uh, were their salaries cut, and they didn't tell me. Now, on a more positive note, well, the famed immunologist, Dr. Fauci, is being elevated to the level of saintdom in uh, many of the memes online, and we rounded up the best tributes online to the doctor. And uh, one of my favorite is a sock puppet, a cute sock puppet in the image of Dr. Fauci. And... Um, <laughs> Many I mean, other. I mean, I I hope people. I hope the intention was not to call him the sock puppet of Trump. I mean, <laughs> that can go many directions. <laughs> Interesting that you mentioned that because I've been checking the comments on our Facebook and Hyperallergics Facebook and Instagram, and um, as expected, most of our readers love these images, but some of them worry that all of this attention and adoration to Fauci might lead Trump to fire him because you know Trump doesn't like being overshadowed by a more popular figure. It's true. But I have to say, even Dr. Fauci has, you know, has been walking a very fine line. And sometimes I do wonder whether he's sort of, uh, you know, purposely not saying things not to peeve off the administration, which also worries me to a certain degree. Yeah. So I yeah. think that's a really good point. Now, Jasmine, there was some there was another medical fundraiser that artists were involved with. Do you want to mention that to people? Yeah. So in New York City, the Elmhurst Hospital in Queens has been at the epicenter of the COVID-19 crisis. 95% of its operating capacity has been dedicated to treating the novel coronavirus. And so a new fundraiser called Pictures for Elmhurst is giving people around the world the opportunity to donate to this hospital in New York. And in return, they'll receive a print from a fashion or fine art photographer. 
There are 96 contributors, among whom are noted artists like Tyler Mitchell and Farah Al-Kasimi. Um, each print is eight and a half by 11, and it's offered for $150, which for someone like Tyler Mitchell, who recently had an exhibition at ICP in New York, is a, is a pretty affordable artwork. And all of these donations are going to go towards the hospital's purchasing fund for equipment like ventilators and 95 and surgical masks and disposable scrubs. That's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that that's going on. So I'm going to use this opportunity to plug our own fundraiser since it's important to sort of continue what it is we're doing. So I just want to let people know, as they've probably noticed, that Hyperallergic has started a membership campaign, a membership program, in order to ensure that we can continue reporting and working through this crisis without any difficulties some people may be surprised, but I'm sure a lot of you are not going to be surprised that as this crisis began, something like over 90% of our ad campaigns were canceled within a, a, just a couple of days. So currently, we are very much asking our readers, our dedicated readers through the years and our current readers to help support us through a membership campaign. And they can visit hyperallergic.com backslash membership. And the good news is our goal is 3,000 contributions, which we think will help guarantee getting us through the next few difficult months and um, we have just hit the halfway point in our campaign which is really incredible 1500 contributions from all around the world so thank you thank you to those who've contributed and you know please share it to those that you know enjoy hyperallergic content and stories and the great reporting like we're hearing here from Jasmine Valentina and Hakeem you know who are the core of our news team and who have been doing such a great job getting the story and the facts so that we can all make informed decisions going forward during this time of crisis. So again, hyperallergic.com backslash membership. No amount is too small. Hyperallergic will continue to be free regardless of the membership program. Members will get a nice a new tote bag in the coming months, which is being prepared, as well as just knowing that they're supporting some of the best art reporting uh, in the field, as well as some of the most critical independent opinions. And as we know, the art world really can benefit from more independent informed opinions. So I hope people will check that out. Again, hyperallergic.com backslash membership. So, I'm so excited for that tote bag, Rock. Yeah, I can't wait either. <laughs> I can't wait either. The designer is incredible. So now, Valentine, I wanted to talk to you because one of the things that the conversation that people are not hearing, perhaps in the office or as we're networked across the country like this, is the fact that there's so many personal aspects of these stories. You know, we, we put on a, our work face when we go to work, we write these stories, you know, but a lot of things happen like, you know, exhaustion sets in and you just need to go and take the day off or something like that. But I wonder if you can give us a little insight on how you're coping personally, because you, you had a couple of things you wanted to share. Yeah. So, you know, especially, I mean, I think everybody's going through a rough time right now. This is difficult for everyone. Um, of course, essential workers are the first to be hit. But as a journalist, we spend a lot of time in front of our computers reading things that are distressing. And I've definitely had to get creative with ways to take care of myself and my mental health. 
There's one thing that was a little bit surprising um, in terms of I didn't realize how much it would help me, but helping others right now is really, really key to having a sense of control and agency and a sense that you're contributing. So here's my little story. We have a next door neighbor here in uh, Florida where I'm currently spending the quarantine. She's in her 80s and her name is Cheryl and she's lovely. And you know, when I first got to Miami, I asked my mom, should we ask her if she needs groceries? My mom said, you know, I'm gonna ask her. And she said, I'm all set with groceries, but could somebody help me set up Zoom? so that I can continue giving my church classes online. And, you know, I didn't know what her level of uh, computer literacy was. So first I was like, okay, let's do a screen share. And she was like, what is that? So then I FaceTimed her and we did a video call where she turned her, her phone screen to her computer screen. And I walked her through installing Zoom, setting up a meeting. We did that several times. We spent like an hour and a half. And I asked her several times, do you feel comfortable doing this? Do you want to do it again? And then every other day I kind of caught up with her. It started to be that if she had some technical troubles, she would call me. And now we just kind of check in on each other to see how we're doing. And I mean, I can't really describe the amount of gratification it has given me to help somebody somebody that, you know, that, that might not have been able to get through something like this on their own. And she has been so grateful. That to me was so therapeutic. So I wanted to share that. And I think it's it's related to this idea of membership drives and fundraising. Like, let's all help each other out right now. Let's support each other. And I think that will help our own individual mental and emotional health as well. I love that. I mean, I can totally relate to that. In my in my personal case, I've been writing letters to people, physical letters, believe it or not. And I feel I like in, I feel like in the absence of physical contact with those you love and you care for, it's sort of nice to receive something physical in the mail during a time where we're all being, uh, you know, social distancing. So I can completely relate, which I really appreciate. There was one story we've forgotten to add, and I just want to give Hakeem the opportunity to talk about the ICU posters, which was another story you had written about earlier this week. Yes, it's another story about artists uh, paying tributes to healthcare workers in very creative ways. Uh, this one is about New York-based artist Elizabeth Yeager, who with her friend Katie Chaplin, a nurse at Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan, are installing those encouraging motivational posters at hospital ICUs. The idea was Chaplin's. She said uh, to her friend Elizabeth that um, if you're bored and uh, you want to do something like a poster, I can uh, post it on the walls of the break room at our hospital. So it started like that. And Jaeger invited other artists to contribute. And she set up this Google Drive for them to upload the posters and for hospitals to download them and print them easily. And it spread to other hospitals. More than 70 artists uh, mostly based in New York, responded to the call, in including artists like Amy Silman, Emma Coleman, Aidan Koch, and others. Many of the posters uh, feature the words thank you and heroes prominently, as expected. And according to Jaeger, more hospitals around the world are downloading these posters and posting them. Yeah, that's great. Thanks so much, Akeem. So I want to say thank you to Jasmine, our news editor. Thank you to Valentina and Hakeem, reporters here at Hyperlogic, for keeping us up to date. And uh, we'll see everybody next week. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks. See everybody next week. Before we sign off, I wanted to bring up a great little song that caught my attention this week. 
Gina Volpe, who's known for her punk style, has written a new song titled Don't Touch Your Face. It's the latest tune being added to the growing roster of coronavirus pop. I asked her how it came about, and she let me know it was originally her own 22nd hand-washing song that morphed into a track all by itself. As a songwriter, she said, it just comes naturally once a lyric gets stuck in her head. Don't touch your face. Don't touch your face. Don't touch your face. Don't touch your face. You're not touching. You're not touching. You're not touching. You're not touching. No. Don't touch your face. 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 No. Thanks to Gina Volpe for letting us use the sample, and you could check out the whole song on YouTube and elsewhere. And a very special thanks to Nathan Fox for letting us use his track, I Can't Hang. To learn more about his work, check out his Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash Nathan Fox Music. I'm Hrag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Do you truly know me? As well as I hope to find Or are you going to let go of me As soon as you see through my disguise Well I've tried so hard to get along with you I gave you all that I could stand to give Girl if you want to walk away from me I'd appreciate if you just did Cause I